Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 14, Great Minds, Part 1. In his memoir, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, Haruki Marukami reflects on the pain of sporting endeavour. Of course it was painful, he says, and there were times when, emotionally, I just wanted to chuck it all. But pain seems to be a precondition for this kind of sport. If pain weren't involved, who in the world would ever go to the trouble of taking part in sports like the triathlon or the marathon, which demands such an investment of time and energy? It's precisely because of the pain, precisely because we want to overcome that pain, that we can get the feeling, through this process, of really being alive, or at least a partial sense of it. Your quality of experience is based not on standards such as time or ranking, but finally on awakening to an awareness of the fluidity within action itself. Sport has been part of society for as long as there has been society. I mentioned in a previous episode that there are cave paintings of audiences watching sport that date back to almost 8000 BCE. Sport has been a preparation for war, a religious rite, a social signifier, a punishment, and a pleasure. So how have the great thinkers thought about sport? What place do philosophers see for sport in our world? And what are the key aspects of sport that present-day philosophy takes an interest in? Let's start with some men with beards. The ancient Greeks thought about a lot of things, including sport. Plato and Aristotle saw sport as a key part of human education and therefore human flourishing. Achieving harmony between mind and body was important to a successful life. Greek thinkers thought of sport being good in three ways. One was its appeal to the appetites of the soul, namely gaining material goods through winning prizes in competitions. This is kind of the base level of things. It's the low end of sports, just being in it for the money. The Greek word athlete originally comes from someone who competes for money. The next stage is the correspondence of sport to your, to your emotional soul. This is about seeking fulfilment in winning and glory. But it's the third one that's most interesting, particularly to someone like Plato. This is where sport isn't about competition with others, but about achieving fulfilment by the perfect execution of something, the perfect conjunction of body and soul. Here it's about competing with yourself without comparison to others. This is fun for Plato, as it lines up with his sense that there is an ideal form of everything. Achieving sporting perfection is an expression of a human ideal. We'll come back to Plato and perfection later. The Romans thought about sport too. On a practical level for them, sport was about preparation for the endless wars, skirmishes and conflicts that they either started or had to respond to. Virgil dedicated part of the Aeneid to the celebration of sporting contests, with a particular emphasis on their effect on military skills. Outside the Western world, Chinese and Japanese thinkers also connected body and spirit, with practices like Tai Chi and Kung Fu. Medieval thinkers didn't focus on physical activity too much, but the Renaissance brought back an interest in classical thinking, and physical activity became part of the curriculum for a good, educated life. Thinkers as diverse as Martin Luther and John Milton sung the praises of physical activity for education and military training. Into the Enlightenment and Rousseau followed the same theme and was a major influence on Pierre de Coubertin in his development of the modern Olympic movement. 
Throughout, there was this confluence in thinking about being a good man, and it was usually men, and that this required a combination of both mental and physical effort. Healthy body, healthy mind, that sort of thing. Over time, there was also a shift towards an aristocratic view of things. Competitive athletic activities were seen as gentlemanly training, sometimes for war, but sometimes just to show how cool a dude you were. This led to a focus on things like swimming, running, horse riding, boxing and fencing, appropriate pursuits for a gentleman, but a disdain for other activities, big games of football for instance. It also led to an exclusion of lower class people and peasants from many of these activities, except perhaps boxing. Through the 18th century, as there were moves towards greater education across society, philosophers called for physical education to be included in this. Again, it's the healthy body, healthy mind ethos, which says you can't be a full and complete man without having some physical prowess. Winning in athletic competitions remained a demonstration of your worth as a person, a way of thinking that often leads us to overvalue the champion and undervalue the individual attainment. More on this later. Over the past century or so, there have been three major phases in how philosophers have approached thinking about sport. First, the eclectic phase. And this was based on creating a philosophy of education which contained play, games and sport as helping people to prepare to live good lives. Then there was the system-based period. This was a bit of a move away from thinking purely about education and teaching and more into considering sport within wider philosophical frameworks and placing it in its cultural and historical contexts. And then most recently, what's called the disciplinary phase. This is about seeing sport as a discipline in itself in the world of philosophy. And it's from here that things like the Journal of the Philosophy of Sport come into being. This modern movement for a philosophy of sport really kick-started in the 1960s, and it started to become a stronger discipline, separating sport out from education and looking at it as a thing in itself. I'll talk more in the next episode about some key topics in the present-day philosophy of sport, but it's now time to get the dictionary out and use some big words on you. These aren't meant to confuse, but to give you some language and concepts to think about sport as a system and a structure. Analytical approaches to thinking about sport ask some useful questions. What is a sport? What do all sports have in common that make them sports? What are the lived experiences of people taking part in sports, like Murakami going for his run? As we move into a world of e-sports, do these count as sports? If so, why? If not, why not? This analytical approach has morphed into more of an applied philosophy phase. It's a bit like the system-based approach of seeing sport in its cultural and historical contexts, but also looking at the social practice of sport and thinking about things like ethical issues around cheating or doping, for example. So okay then, what is sport? Let's dive into some ways of defining sport. An externalist approach would look at sport as a reflection of wider social contexts and issues. So sport would be determined by the society around it. Sometimes we can see this quite clearly, particularly looking back to say class divides in different sports in Britain and France, or looking at race distinctions and participation in American sports. Some thinkers see sports only as economic commodities. Sport doesn't have a value in itself for them, it only has an economic value that it generates. 
Others, the so-called new left thinkers, see sport as a way of creating and reproducing social history, looking at things like labor, economics, and sport together. Others still, the hegemony theorists, like to allow for a little more humanity in their thinking about sport. However, all of the externalist views tend to say that sport doesn't have any value in and of itself. On the opposite side of the net are the internalists. They're not looking at history or society, but rather at the things specific to sport, which make it different from other social practices. These guys are asking, what is the sportiness of sport? What is its value? What are its underlying principles? And from that, what are the fundamental rules that we might expect to see and for sports people to adhere to? Now, this quest for underlying principles can go in a number of directions. One would be that sport is based solely on its written rules. Just by reading the rules, you'd know A, whether something was a sport, B, whether the thing that you're doing right now is playing that sport, and C, whether you're playing it properly. This school of thought is called formalism, and its main proponent is Bernard Sweets. Sweets argued that there are four elements common to every game or sport. Goals, means, rules, and an attitude among the participants. Goals are, sometimes literally goals, the in-game goal of trying to achieve a thing, hitting all five biathlon targets, for example, and the overarching goal of trying to win the game. The means are the methods by which you're allowed to achieve the goal. You're not allowed to just run up to the biathlon targets and knock them over with your fists, for example. The fun thing is that the means within a game and a sport actually limit how you can achieve the goals. They make it harder to play the game. In soccer, one of the means is that you can only use your feet, legs or head to touch the ball, unless you're the goalie. So you're trying to achieve your literal goal, but you're limited in the means by which you can do it. You can't pick up the ball and run with it, because that's rugby. So following on from the means, we have the rules. Now these document in more detail what you are and are not permitted to do. They're the constitution of a sport. But there are also rules of skill, which help you to know how to play the game well. These might be practical things like keep your eye on the ball, or accelerate when you get to the top of the hill to carry speed into a descent. Lastly, we have this thing about attitude. Players need to commit to playing in accordance with the rules, but also to commit that breaking the rules ends the game. This is a fine point which will come up later. Thought experiment time. If you were skiing along in a biathlon and saw a shortcut through the trees that would save you a couple of hundred meters, would you take it if you were absolutely sure that no one was watching? If you say you would take the shortcut, then that's cheating, i.e. not playing according to the rules. Now step back from this a bit. You're preparing for a race and you think, if I see a shortcut, would I take it? Sweets is trying to say that if you can imagine that you would take a shortcut, you're still cheating the game, even if no shortcut exists. Bernard Sweets builds on his thinking to come up with a definition of sports in four parts. One, it's a game of skill. Two, that the skill is physical rather than mental, which is why chess is a game and not a sport. Three, that the game has a wide following, so it's got some popularity. And four, that there is some stability to that following, so it's not just a fad. 
This is kind of weird because for Bernard Sweets, part of what makes a sport a sport is that it is institutionalised. It is popular and stable. So this means things like codified rules, a federation or an association. This actually leads back to thinking about those more externalist approaches to sport. You know, thinking about economics and commodities and the role of sport in its social context. Some philosophers disagree with Sweets on this one. Imagine if soccer didn't have a following or any institutions. Would it still be a sport? Instinctively, you want to say yes. Now go the other way. Perhaps some of the emerging winter sports like border cross or slope style. Before they had rules, they were just things done by a group of people on a mountainside somewhere in Colorado. If that group invented some rules and some scoring criteria, but no one else ever played, would they be doing a sport? If this all seems a bit strange, don't worry. This is philosophy, and it can sometimes feel like you're talking about words when the words are obvious. But what philosophy tries to get us to do is examine the words. If you take an externalist view of the sporting world, things only seem to become sports once they have that codified rule set, an element of professional management, and a following. That's how they get into the Olympics after all. One of the big criticisms of formalism and its belief in rules is that it doesn't take account of the other types of norms in sport, things that aren't written in the rule book but are kind of accepted in how you play. There's often etiquette in sports. A cycling peloton will slow down if the leader of a race, race crashes, for example. This stuff isn't in the official rulebook, but it's the way that you play the game. The other thing about a wholehearted belief in the rules is that you effectively stop the game the moment someone breaks the rules. Now that obviously doesn't happen. The rules themselves allow for a game to carry on. If someone commits a foul, then the other team gets a free kick or a free throw, for example. So the rules themselves contain the solution to what happens when someone breaks the rules. Perhaps it's a matter of degree. One handball incident in a soccer match can be dealt with by the rules. But if a whole team keeps picking up the ball and running with it, then the game itself is broken. So if you want a bit more flexibility than what's in the rulebook, you're probably what's known as a conventionalist. That's someone who takes account of the unwritten rules, the things that aren't in the rulebook, maybe because they weren't imagined when the sport was codified. Now this allows a bit of flexibility. Maybe the rules are applied slightly differently at amateur and professional levels. Maybe a casual pickup game of basketball is a bit freer with rules than an NBA playoff game. Conventionalism lacks the sort of moral edge of a rule book. It says, these are the conventions, but it doesn't discriminate between good conventions and bad conventions. One thing that conventionalism does try to do is separate out the deep conventions and the more superficial ones. Deep conventions are those big underpinning norms that the players share. Think about watching snowboarders or skiers in a halfpipe. All of the other competitors celebrate their achievements. This is a deep convention that all participants are sharing in a collective journey towards bigger and better tricks. A superficial convention might be more about how you agree to play the sport in that moment, the accepted rules and ways of playing in your specific league on that specific day. So that was a bit of a look at externalism. What about its opposite, internalism? Well, this says that sport has rules and conventions, and also something more, some underlying principles that have to fit into any theory of sport as a thing that people do. 
Things like a sense of justice or fair play would be one. The pursuit of excellence might be another. These are the things that help a sport make sense. And there are three things to pick out here. First, contractualism. This is the idea that everyone taking part has a sort of social contract to follow the rules and conventions. It's not enough just to have the rules, everyone has to agree to follow them. Secondly, mutualism. This is a way of saying that everyone has a shared mutual quest for achieving excellence through the sporting challenge. That goes back to those, those snowboarders cheering each other on. And thirdly, respect for the integrity of the game, even if this means adjusting the rules on the fly. Now this is crucial for internalists. The rules aren't sacred. There is wriggle room for interpretation to suit the broader purpose of the game. Internalists put a strong emphasis on the pursuit of excellence as the purpose of sporting competition, without necessarily having winning as the only condition of excellence. Someone who achieves something great, a personal best, a new trick, the first quad jump in ice skating, the fastest clean shoot on the range, that person is celebrated even if they don't finish first. Victory is seen as an externalist thing. It's based on what the rules say winning should be. Pursuing excellence is an internalist thing. Professor Gunnar Breivik at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences talks about four ways in which we make worlds when we play sport, drawing on the work of Heidegger and others. They are I, me, where you're basically competing against yourself, so how fast can I run, how far can I throw the ball, and that can just be you and no one else is involved. Then there's I, you, which is competition between athletes, where you're measuring your skill against an opponent. Then we have I, society, where people come together in groups to take part in sport, usually against another team. And then I, nature, where we interact and relate to nature during the playing of the sport. It's fun to layer this over biathlon, and it's probably no coincidence that this comes from a Norwegian academic. I, me, is a way of thinking about sprint or individual races, where you're competing solo against the clock, though with the notion of other athletes involved elsewhere, which goes against the pure definition. I, you, captures pursuits and mass starts, athletes very much against each other. I, society, takes you to relays. And I, nature, is a fundamental aspect of the sport. You're within and also against the elements in biathlon, the terrain, the snow and ice, the wind. So many components come into play, more than in many other sports. Now that's as far, about as far as I can get with anything that relates to Heidegger. So that's possibly a good spot to take a break and talk about some biathlon. Last week in Nova Miesto, uh, we started with the sprints. And despite all our thoughts that things would change, world championship hangovers, distraction of a new baby at home, it was business as usual for Johannes and for Taye. The Bow brothers took first and second in the sprint. Watching Johannes shoot 10 out of 10 and glide regally around the tracks, it seemed so effortless. It's like the bit in the Matrix movie where Neo suddenly just has mastery of the Matrix and can bend time and space to his will. Nothing flustered Johannes. Taye, who I thought might cruise the rest of the season, was on good form, another 10 out of 10. And the Norwegians rounded out a top four with Vettel Christensen and relative newcomer Andre Stromsheim. I should note that uh, Stura Ligrid came down with COVID and was missing from this week's racing. The winner of the I'm Not Norwegian race 
was Fabien Claude of France, who found some speed late on. And there were good performances from Martin Poinsaloma, his Swedish compatriot Jesper Nellin, Roman Rees, and that man Antonin Gigana, who seems quite happy with his life at the moment. The women's sprint saw a few struggles, though still top 10 finishes, for some of the stars of the World Championships. In very windy conditions, it was clear that someone shooting 10 out of 10 would be near the top of the leaderboard. That person was Marta Olsbull-Roysland. She was growing into form at Oberhof and managed to tie it all together and look like her old self. There was a fantastic second place for Ingrid Tanderold, who seems to have taken a real spark of confidence from her mass start second in Oberhof. Third went to Inès Chevalier-Boucher of France, also continuing her good run of form. To borrow from Shakespeare, the pursuits were full of sound and fury, but signified nothing. The bows came first and second again, and Poinsuloma made it into third, but otherwise the men's top ten was pretty close to the sprint result. One name of note, Florent Claude, the oldest of the Claude brothers, shot 20 out of 20, and moved up from 24th to 10th. The women's pursuit saw the same top three, but Julia Simon, who will never stop chasing, moved up from 9th to 4th. The Oberg sisters had a disastrous sprint. Elvira didn't qualify for the pursuit, but Hannah did manage to turn a 30th place into a 10th. Sunday was relay day. In the mixed relay, so two men, two women, it was the French who prevailed, with a standout performance from 21-year-old Eric Perrault, who skied patiently and shot his standing shoot like a junior Martin Foucault. Sweden took second and Norway third. Lastly, in the single mixed relay, so one man, one woman, we had some surprises. Roysland and Christiansen took a fairly predictable win, but second place went to Hartweg and Berserger of Switzerland, and third to Andrei Yastogyevs and Baiba Bendika of Lat Latvia, their best ever finish in a single mixed relay. A lot of people have talked about Rastogyev's performance, but for me, Baiba Bendika was the standout. She started in bib 24 at the back of the field, skied smartly, overtook where she could, and shot brilliantly to bring Latvia up into fifth so that Andre could finish the job. Back to the philosophy. One of the key things about sport is that it both matters and it doesn't. This is part of its appeal, and also part of why some people just don't get it. They see sport as trivial or unimportant compared either to weightier issues of the day or to more venerated forms of entertainment like art galleries or the opera. So does sport give us something that the other things don't? Perhaps the meaninglessness of sport is important. Sport is fleeting. Apart from a few Hall of Fame type institutions, sport doesn't get treated in the same saintly way as many other entertainments. It is fleeting, but it's also embedded in our societies. It creates a rhythm through our year, literally the changing of the seasons. As I write this, winter sports are coming to an end for the year and spring sports, cricket, baseball, are starting to come back to life. Sport also enables fandom, and fandom gives us a tribe. It gives us a social connection with strangers, and a sense of meaning which, in some cases, could be said to have replaced religion. Fans travel to the same building once a week to sing songs and chant in honour of their favourite gods of the football field. Sport has its rituals. Some are group-based, like singing in a church choir. Some are individual, the lucky talisman you carry is not that far removed from a rosary. The word religion comes from a root which means to be bound to, and it's no stretch to see that fans are bound to their teams or their favourite athletes in a way that builds emotional participation and celebrates ritual. It's not all good. 
the ethos of winning has become dominant, and I'll talk more about this in the next episode as we explore what the moral, ethical and physical costs might be of that absolute will to win. And just as religions have spawned violence, so have sporting tribes. But sport can be a place where we situate ourselves, where we literally or figuratively sit next to someone and take time to share an experience which can lift us or sink us emotionally, and which we can usually leave behind once it's done. That's a good thing, right? This week, we head to Ostersund in Sweden, which is officially a long way away. Searching Google Maps for Ostersund, O-S-T-E-R-S-U-N-D, you'll see that it's inland and about 550 kilometres north of Stockholm. Ostersund started small and stayed that way for a long time. It was a garrison town, so those military connections again, but it grew as the city folk tried to impose themselves between local farmers and the trading routes out to market through Sweden's rivers and roads. This was obviously not popular with the farmers. However, when the railways came in the late 1800s, it seemed to make more sense, and Ostersund became a hub for the local region and started to grow in prominence, connecting the towns to ports both east and west. About 75,000 people now live in the Ostersund municipal area. Ostersund's nickname is the Winter City, and it's the beneficiary of a strange microclimate, which makes its winters a bit milder than those of other towns that are so far north. The price for this is that summers are cooler too, but it does make a more comfortable experience in the snow season. The Biathlon Stadium has hosted the World Championships three times and is a regular on the World Cup circuit. The racing starts tomorrow, Thursday the 9th of March, uh, with the Women's Individual, which sets off at 12.15 UK time, followed by the Men's Individual, which sets off at 3.20 UK time. Friday's a day off for, for recovery. And then Saturday the 11th of March, we have both the relays, so the women's relay at 1 o'clock and the men's relay at 3.30. And then on Sunday the 12th of March, we have the two mass start races, so the women's mass start at 12 o'clock and the men's mass start at 3 o'clock. This week, things could get interesting on the men's side. Unfortunately, the Norwegian men's team has had an outbreak of Covid with Sturr and Ligrid and now both Bow brothers affected, likely to miss this weekend. There was talk of them maybe coming back later in the weekend, but we shall see. Now this leaves things pretty open. The Swedish men will be keen to impress at home, look out for Martin Ponsoloma and Pep Femling, as well as two rising stars, elsewhere Andre Stromsheim of Norway and Eric Perrault of France. Of all the youngsters, Nicholas Hartweg is the one who's been threatening a breakout result all season. He's so accurate with his shooting and has some great raw speed. But perhaps this one is for a veteran. Benedict Dole, perhaps, or even Simon Ader. Without the Bows, Ligrid, Fionn Maillet and Jacqueline, it's really anyone's weekend. On the women's side, everything is still to play for. Poor Elvira Erberg struggled in Nova Mesto. She had a bad sprint and missed out on the pursuit. And it seems like she's still struggling to get back to full health. She poured everything into the relay at Oberhof, and this is perhaps the price for all that effort. Expect the Swedish women to be prominent. Hannah Erberg often performs well here, and Lynn Person and Mona Brawson both look good right now. But the women's races are so hard to call. These are both longer format 20 shot races this weekend, so the people who do well in sprints might struggle with the extra distance and shooting. More reliable athletes like Anais Chevalier-Boucher, Lisa Theresa Hauser, 
Lisa Vitozzi and Vanessa Voigt could shine. Voigt's found some good form recently. And Julia Simon will never give up, especially in a mass start where it's elbow-to-elbow racing. One last thing. Many philosophers have thought and written about sport, but a few have played too. Plato was a strong wrestler. In fact, the name Plato is a nickname derived from his having broad shoulders. He won contests at major games, but was very much a wrestling purist, wanting the sport to be fixed as he saw it, not letting in new techniques or approaches, which would take it from what he saw as its ideal. American philosopher John Rawls is perhaps most famous for his thought experiment, where he asks you to imagine how you would design a society in which you would live, but without you knowing anything about your identity, status or wealth in that society. What would you create? Generally, the thought experiment leads to ideas about very equal societies, where everyone has equality of opportunity or access. Without knowing our own status in the world, we want to create a world which treats us fairly, and the only way to do that is to treat everyone else fairly too. Rawls, it turns out, was also a sportsman. He played college football for Princeton, and a sports fan. He said that one sport brought to life the idea of the equal society, and that was baseball as it provided opportunities for everyone to play in different positions that suited them. He contrasted it to basketball, which is reserved for the tall and therefore excludes the short. And the French-Algerian writer Albert Camus famously played in goal for his university soccer team until a bout of tuberculosis left him unable to play. He remained an avid soccer fan throughout his life, often being interviewed by the French media about sport rather than about his books or thoughts. For Camus, life was all there is. No afterlife, no promises of anything beyond. But rather than lament this, we should recognise its absurdity and live it. He used the story of Sisyphus pushing a rock uphill to demonstrate the futility of much of our existence. Every time you think you've been able to ascertain the meaning of life, the the answer eludes you, because there is no answer. The rock rolls down the hill. But you don't give up. You just start pushing again. Late in his life, Camus said, After many years in which the world has afforded me many experiences, what I know most surely in the long run about morality and obligations, I owe to football. And of course, you can watch a range of philosophers kicking a ball around in the Monty Python sketch, The Philosopher's Football Match. If you don't know it, look it up and enjoy. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode along with links to all sorts of background information and sources at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter at skishootrepeat. And please do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong. I've said before, this podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I do expect to get fact-checked, especially in an episode like this where I'm outside my comfort zone. Also, let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I'll be back next week to review the racing in Ostersund, carry on this discussion about philosophy and sports, and look ahead to the final race meet of the season in at the Holmenkollen in Oslo. Thanks for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle. <laughs>